Amen. Okay, I just want to start uh, by telling you that every so often, uh, every few years, the Office of National Statistics comes up with, does this massive amount of research and interviews thousands of people up and down the country as part of its well-being survey, national well-being survey. And as part of that survey, they're, they're measuring things like getting people to, to mark on the, 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 the scale where they land on things like self-satisfaction, sense of worthwhileness, uh, and happiness. Uh, and as they measured all those things, the, the last survey they did was in 2017, and the results became available in 2018. Um, and the region of the UK that came out on top of the happiness scale was are we are we country are we country Northern Ireland came out top out top on all of the, all three of those measures uh, when uh, it came out on top of self satisfaction sense of worth happiness and the lowest rates of anxiety um, who thought it there we go we are a fairly fairly happy place to be. Um, if you looked at the results in more generally, you, there were some general trends that were interesting. On the whole, generally, throughout the UK, of course there's all sorts of exceptions, but generally, uh, it turns out that you'll be happier uh, if you live in the country as opposed to the city. Bad news for us, I suppose, living in Belfast, but that's, that's the case. Uh, generally, there is a trend that looks like this for happiness over the course of your life. Most people are pretty happy in their teenage years, pretty content with life, uh, pretty content, happy with life in their retirement, and happiness levels take a significant dip, apparently, in your, in your mid-years, okay? Um, but it does raise the question, leaves us with the question, what is happiness? What is happiness? How do you get it? And how do you keep it? Right? What is happiness? How do you get it? Uh, and how do you keep it? Well, there's plenty of answers if you listen to our society at the minute. There's plenty of answers that would come out. Uh, most, uh, a large part, not all, but a large part of our advertising industry is based on the premise, based on the assumption that if you increase your material prosperity and living standards, you'll be happier. You'll be happier. If you only had this this extra thing, you'd be happy. Okay, That's the basis of so much of our advertising. Um, but of course, I think by experience, and, and if you read any of the, the psychologists, that's just not the case. That's just not true. I wonder, did you know that uh, on average, we are about three times more affluent uh, than our parents who lived in the 1950s, on average. But by every measure, in every piece of research that has been done in, in the last couple of decades, we have seen that although we are getting richer as a society, we are becoming less happy and satisfied with the lives that we're leading. Um, in fact, there was a big study by a, a market research company called Growth for Knowledge. It's a big German uh, market research company, and it, it produced this big report. And here was the concluding statement of that report. It said the story of wealth failing to translate into extra happiness is the story of the Western world. 
I think I've told you this story before, um, um, when J.D. Rockefeller, who was the founder of Standard Oil, who is regarded even today as probably the richest American who has ever lived, uh, having a personal wealth of over $300 billion, think about that, $300 billion, was asked, how much money does it take to make you happy, Mr. Rockefeller? And he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. But look, if, if, ha- if, if happiness isn't to be found in the stuff that we can accumulate, uh, what will make us happy? Well, some would, would agree with Victor Hugo, the, the novelist, who said, man's greatest happiness is to be convinced that we are loved. Man's greatest happiness is to be convinced we are loved. And that's certainly the message that you hear in so much of the music that we listen to, the pop music that we listen to, the, the films that we watch, the, the literature that we read. Uh, but when you stop and think about it, we all at the same time know that it's those people who are closest to us who infuriate us the most. That's true, isn't it? Uh, it's those people that we claim to love the most who we hurt the most and who hurt us the most. Uh, I love the quote uh, by George Burns, the comedian, who said, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. Uh, So if I had a magic wand, if I had a magic wand this morning, imagine I had such a thing, and I could give you one wish that would make you happy. What would you ask for? What would you ask for? What would be the thing? Would it be a relationship? Would it be uh, a possession? Would it be an achievement on your record, your CV? What would you ask for? Well, it turns out that Psalm 1 tells us how we can be happy. Psalm 1 tells us how we can be happy. It's there in the first word of the psalm, blessed is the man or blessed is the person. Uh, The word blessed that's used there is not the typical word used in the Old Testament for for blessing, uh, which is the word barak, which is used for Abraham, you know, uh, it's used for for Israel, blessing and curses and all that. Uh, It's not the typical word, which that word means favored by God. Uh, It's very common. Uh, This is a different word that's used. And it's used in a number of places in the Psalms. And it's also used in some of the the historical writings uh, in, in the Old Testament. And it really means be truly happy. Be truly happy. Um, He chooses this less spiritual, more experiential word to describe what uh, a person who knows and delights in God and his word can enjoy. Um, We'll see that, what I want to do for the next few minutes, I want to guide you through the psalm. I want to show you the different bits of it. But there's one big point that the psalm has that I want to leave you with. Uh, this morning. So what I want to do is first guide you through the psalm. How do you spot the truly happy person? Well, three things. You can spot the truly happy person because they have three things. Number one, you can spot the truly happy person by the company that they keep. Second, you can spot the truly happy person by the flourishing 
uh, they experience. And last, last, you can spot the truly happy person by the security that they enjoy. So first, the, you can spot the truly happy person by the company that they keep, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Now, in, in fact, he starts off by talking about the company that the righteous person doesn't keep. Um, if you are a parent of children under 18, I think we all passionately care about the company our children are keeping. I think we all care about that. Um, it turns out God cares about that too. God cares about the company uh, we're keeping. Um, but if you look closely, and I want you to do this because it's easy, very easy to misread verses 1 and 2. Uh, I want you to notice what this, the writer of this ancient song does not say. He does not say, blessed is the person who does not walk with the wicked or stand with sinners or sit with mockers. He does not say that. Instead, he says, blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Um, I want to suggest that the happy person, the truly happy person, will have lots of friends and lots and lots of friends who don't know Jesus. And they will be surrounded by them all the time. They'll be surrounded by them at work. They will socialize with them. Um, But what makes this person truly happy is that, number one, they don't accept the counsel of the wicked. They don't accept their advice. They don't then walk in the way of the wicked. They don't, so they don't think like the wicked. They don't then behave like the wicked. Walk in their shoes is the idea. Walk in their ways. Do what they do. And does not literally dwell in the company of mockers. It's the idea that he does not have a seat at their table. He does not belong with them. And so the idea then is that those who are truly happy are happy because they do not accept the advice of the wicked. They're not party to their ways uh, and they do not adopt their attitude. Uh, Recently I read a story of uh, a little old lady who was 104 and she was asked, what is the best thing about being 104? And she said, "Without without a hesitation, she said, no peer pressure. No peer pressure. Uh, I guess brilliant. Um, none of us here are 104, and there's peer pressure everywhere. There's peer pressure everywhere to try to reshape our thinking, to get us to behave like those around us, to get us to, ser- to share the, the cynical, uh, skeptical, mocking cynicism uh, of the world around us. Uh, we will only be truly happy when we say no to the advice of the world, the behavior of the world, and the attitude of the world. And the reason why uh, this blessed man of verse 1 can say no in verse 1 is because he's already said yes in verse 2. He's already said yes in verse 2. 
you see, he has already, he is already accepting the advice of someone else. He's already imitating the character of someone else. He already belongs to the community of someone else. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This phrase, the law of the Lord, look, it's not just a phrase that refers to the Ten Commandments or refers to the, the, the instructions or the regulations of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In fact, when Jesus in John 10 is talking to uh, religious leaders and Jews uh, and debating with them, he will say, um, is it not written in your law? And then goes on to quote one of the Psalms. And so this phrase, the law of the Lord, can be used as a general expression to refer to the whole of the scriptures. To refer to the whole of the scriptures. And I think that's probably what is going on here in Psalm 1. Um, What we see here then is that the person who knows, delights in God and his word, and is seeking to accept his advice, accepting, ex- attempting to, be- to live his life, to behave in a way that pleases God, uh, and to belong to his community, that is the one, that is the person who will be truly happy because they have the right company, and that company is God himself. The first uh, piece uh, of evidence to see if someone is truly happy is the company that they keep second, the flourishing they experience, verses 3 and 4. The writer uses then, uh, the songwriter uses then two word pictures to highlight the difference between someone who is uh, delighting in God and his word and someone who is rejecting God and his world uh, and, his, and his word in the world that he has made. And the, the, the contrasting picture is between a tree and chaff. Uh, Now for those of us who are uh, city dwellers, uh, maybe we're not familiar with chaff. Uh, Chaff is the husk that is around the grain uh, um, and the threshing process is is getting rid uh, and separating that useless, lifeless, weightless chaff from what is valuable, the, the grain. And in the ancient world, what they would do is they would go out on a a windy day and they would get the grain and they would throw it up into the air and the wind would blow away the weightless, lifeless, useless chaff and then the valuable grain would fall straight down uh, for for planting, for food. Um, And really then the, the contrast couldn't be sharper then between this beautiful, flourishing, life-giving tree and useless, weightless, lifeless chaff. If we are someone then who is uh, seeking to to know God, to delight in him and in his word, then what we need to do, what we can be, what we can be is we can be a tree. We can be a tree. Now that sounds a bit boring when you initially think of it. Why would I want to be a tree? Um... But actually, when you stop and think about it, it's actually a really powerful, really beautiful image of what your life and my life could really be like. First thing we see is that we could be stable. We could be stable. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, in Israel, uh, 
some of the rivers and brooks and streams were often seasonal. They flowed in, this, in the winter and the autumn time, but when the heat of spring and summer kicked in, uh, they would dry up, leaving a dry wadi. But this is a, a tree that, that's planted by not just one stream, but streams, plural. There's lots of streams. So even if one of the streams dries up, there'll always be another for which to get uh, life and sustenance. And that means that whenever uh, the heat comes on, that this tree will continue to have life and continue to be stable. I think that's quite an attractive thought as we think about what our lives could be like. Uh, the heat, when the, we talk even today about when the heat is on, when the heat is on, life is difficult. It feels an uphill struggle. You could be stable. You could be stable, not knocked over. Second picture is that it is fruitful in season, which yields its fruit in season. Uh, the person who delights in God and his word will be f- a fruitful person, but that, that fruit is not always the same. There is seasons to life. And I think we all know that from our own experience, don't we? Um, sometimes we feel on the mountaintop. Sometimes we feel that we're really passionate for God. Uh, we are delighting in him and his word. We are fervent in our evangelism. We could, can't wait to open his word and read it. There's great joy. Uh, often when we're first converted, that's, that's how we feel, isn't it? There's that um, spring fruit of joy. Then there's the, the summer fruit when we begin to invest our time and effort and we see God using us. Um, in, in some way in, in the church where we're serving, uh, in uh, the conversations we're having, and it's giving us great excitement, again, great joy. Um, there is that summer fruit. But in the Christian life, and here we see a hint of it here, but it's, it's common all the way through the Bible, there are winter seasons to life. The Bible is incredibly honest and incredibly realistic. There are seasons when it is difficult. It is difficult. And there are no fruit on the trees, on the, on the branches. But even if you know anything about horticulture and you know about what, tr- what trees do in the wintertime, what trees do in the wintertime is they put their roots down deeper into the ground. And they become a little thicker. And that's how it is for the Christian life as well. When we face disappointment, when we face distress, when we face illness when we face relationship breakdown or circumstances running against us, what will happen for the Christian, for someone who really knows God and delights in his word, is that you put your roots down deeper. You get a little bit wiser. You get a little bit more patient. A little bit more compassionate. You grow. You continue to grow even in the wintertime, but that growth looks a little different. It looks a little different. And so it is for the Christian. They are to be someone who bears fruit in season. Always growing. Sometimes it looks a little different from other times in life. And then lastly, they will prosper. Whose leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers. Some of you will know that this is a a kind of theme verse for, for some of those who in the prosperity gospel. They rip this verse bleeding from its context and say if you trust Jesus and name and claim the promise you can be healthy and wealthy and all will be well. 
But actually, when you look at it in the context, after just talking about bearing fruit in season, um, it's talking about a tree. How does a tree prosper? Bigger bank account? Uh, more? Bigger property portfolio? No, how does, it, how does an apple tree prosper? Bears apples. Bears apples. Fruit. This tree prospers. It bears fruit. In the same way as a Christian, we are to be fruitful. We considered that a number of months ago. What does it look like to be fruitful? I think there's a couple of ideas here if you start reading through the rest of the Bible. Certainly at the, at, at the first level, it's, it's to be fruitful in our own character. The fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. Paul summarizes it in Galatians 5, um, 22 and 23, where he talks about how we can... The fruit of the Spirit... The fruit of a changed life, the evidence the Holy Spirit is really working in you, uh, is that you will grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those are, that's, that's the prospering that we should be looking for in our lives. But also then there's the, the fruit of gospel growth. It's also another idea um, that we could see other people added to our number as we talk about how God has been working uh, and how he's been so kind to us, point others to the work and the person of the Lord Jesus. And we see them come to faith too. And we see this church being fruitful. Um, We will be confident that we could experience real flourishing and real fruitfulness if we are people who delight in God and delight in his word and delight in his word. The third characteristic then of the person who's truly happy is number one, you can see it from the company they keep. They keep company with God as well as others. uh, And that's the key relationship in their life. You can see the truly happy person by the flourishing they experience. They are fruitful people in season. And then thirdly, you can see the happy people by the security that they enjoy, verses 5 and 6. Now, one commentator I was reading this week, a guy called Dale Ralph Davis, uh, who's very helpful, he asked a brilliant question that I'd never thought about before. Uh, And the question is, why is Psalm 1, Psalm 1? Why is Psalm 1, Psalm 1? At some point, someone had to put this book together. Someone had to say, we're going to have this psalm first, uh, and not others, you know. So it could have been Psalm 23. Probably, if I was picking it, probably put it at Psalm 23 first. You know, a brilliant, uh, beautiful song uh, of how God uh, provides and protects and has a permanent home for His people. What a beautiful! Like, like you could do worse than have that on the front page of the, Psalm, the, the book of Psalms, couldn't you? But he writes this: uh, Why isn't it Psalm 103? What could be more winsome than plastering the mercy of God across the front page of the Psalter? Or perhaps first off, we need a grand view of the majesty and wonder of God. So why isn't it Psalm 139? So why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Because it packs a matter of such supreme importance. Here are two ways, two humanities, two destinies clearly spelled out. Nothing is so crucial as belonging to the congregation of the righteous. You see the psalm in perfect agreement with the Lord Jesus. Remember some of the parables the Lord Jesus said, there's only two ways to live. 
You can go through the narrow gate and be on the narrow road, or you can go through the broad gate and be on the broad road. One of, one of either option. There is no third way. You can be a, a, among the sheep or the goats. There's no other animal. Black and white, there's two ways to live. And this psalm completely agrees. There's only two ways ultimately to live. You can be uh, among the, the assembly of the wicked or the congregation of the righteous. Those are your only two choices. Which group do you want to be part of? And when we read this first, especially if you're not totally familiar with reading the Bible, uh, your temptation when reading this is to think, okay, then the righteous, they are good people, and the wicked, they are bad people. Isn't that right? They're the people who like stealing and uh, being dishonest and uh, maybe have a tendency to violence. You know, there's a few bad apples out there like that. Most of us, of course, most of us, of course, are, are part of the righteous. We're good people, essentially good people. But that is not what the Psalms are saying. And that is not what this language is referring to. For example, Psalm 143 verse 2 says that no one living is righteous before you. No one. None of us, none of us naturally left to ourselves are among the congregation of the righteous. We are all people who are naturally wicked. And in the Bible, wicked doesn't mean that you're really, really, really bad. It means that you live your life without reference to God. That's simply what you could be really, really lovely, lovely, kind, and considerate, and hospitable, and wicked. Because you live your life without reference to God. And so how then, is it, this psalm then raises the question, how then can we be blessed? How then is it possible for people like you and me to be among the congregation of the righteous? How is that possible? And in many ways this psalm leaves us hanging. It doesn't really answer that question fully. Turn over with me for the answer, however, to uh, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. If you... If you want to just look, it's on the screen, I believe, behind me as well. Uh, Romans chapter 4. I've selected some verses from that. Let me read Paul's answer. Now, listen out for the language of the righteous, for the language of the, the blessed. It's all here. What does Scripture say? This is Romans 4. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... Uh, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks about the blessedness, and he's about to quote Psalm 32, which has the same odd word for blessed that Psalm 1 has. When he speaks of the blessedness of the one uh, to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed, happy is the one whose sins the Lord will never count against them. The words, it is credited to him, were written not for him alone, 
but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now we don't have time to go into those verses in any detail, but just to say, here's the logic. Who are the righteous? The righteous are those who are blessed. Who are those who are blessed? They are those who have been forgiven because they have trusted in the death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See the logic? If you're trusting in Jesus, you are one of the blessed, and you are a member of the assembly of the righteous. And so the promises of Psalm 1 are offered to you that you can be truly happy. You can be truly happy. How is this possible? Again, Paul uh, spells it out a little later in, in 2 Corinthians 5 where he said, God made him, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus took our place, took our penalty on the cross so that he might give us the gift of forgiveness and membership in the congregation of the righteous. And so the psalm presents you with a choice, with a choice. Do you want to be a tree? Do you want to be chaff? Do you want to live a life that is stable and fruitful and significant? Or do you want your life to end up being empty, insignificant, unsatisfying, and ultimately blown away? Do you want to be wicked? Or do you want to be righteous? Do you want to be happy? Or do you not? What choice are you going to make? What choice are you going to make? And here then is how we make the choice. Here's how we make the choice. Here's the pathway, the entrance point for you to join the congregation of the righteous and for you to begin to uh, have a happy life. And here it is. It's there in verse 2. And I just want to just think about this for a few minutes as we close. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Here's how we begin. Here's how we begin. If you begin to meditate on the law, the, the whole of the scriptures that find their climax in the work of Jesus, uh, if you meditate on the scriptures, you can begin to experience this happiness that the psalm promises to you. Now, again, when we think on meditate, we probably think of someone sitting in the lotus position, kind of humming uh, and emptying their mind. The word, the Hebrew word here for, for meditate is actually the word, it can be translated to, to mutter, to murmur, uh, or to repeat out loud over and over and over and over again. That's what it means to meditate. It means to fill your mind with God's word and to get it through your mind into your heart by repeating it over and over and over again. Um, this psalm is saying that the person who wants to be truly happy will be preoccupied with God's word. Preoccupied with God's word. I wonder what you're preoccupied with. What are you preoccupied with? When your mind goes to neutral, what do you think about? Uh, if I, you were to ask my family, could we close that door? That would be helpful. 
uh, or is it not able to be closed? Uh, if you were to ask my family, what am I preoccupied with? Uh, I think you might say, uh, they might say, he's preoccupied with his phone. I think you probably might say that. And I think in an age of uh, digital distraction, we are obsessed. We're obsessed with the screens uh, that, we're, that are in front of us. And I do think that that is making it increasingly difficult for us to meditate on God's word. With constant buzzing uh, and pinging in your pocket. Um, I read a little thing this week uh, to maybe shed a little bit of light on why we are so obsessed with the screens that seem to be permanently kind of attached to us. And the reason that this this writer gave was that we're flattered by our screens. I think that's really helpful. We're flattered by our screens. It's as if there's someone telling you uh, constantly, I'm interested in you. Look, Look at me. Here's something you need to know. Here's something you can help with. Please give your opinion on this. And so we're constantly checking our phone and it's increasingly difficult for us to be um, meditating on God's word filling our minds with what he has said thinking God's thoughts after him and mulling them over in our heads with our constant distraction and so as I finish here's just some nuts and bolts Um, something that I personally have found helpful I offer it to you if you have something else great God bless you Uh, but here's what I offer uh, over the last couple of years, I have found uh, or rediscovered in many ways uh, a way of reading the Bible that Christians have used for centuries and find helpful. Uh, it's on the screen there. Uh, please don't be put off by the Latin words, by the way. It makes, you know, it's, it's not like Harry Potter spells here. It's, uh, these, these Latin words, they're, they're, they're actually really simple but, and they're useful labels. Uh, Lectio Divina. Uh, spiritual reading of the Bible. Um, there are those five steps: uh, silencio, lectio, meditatio, oratio, and contemplatio. Um, five steps, and really, the goal of all of this is number one to slow you down in a hectic life of constant distraction. Here is a practice that will slow you down. And the goal of this is not that you become, you have more Bible trivia in your head. The goal of this is to help you develop a conversational relationship with your God. That is the goal. And I find both of these things helpful. First, uh, silencio. And really that's just the idea to try to get you to be quiet. Be quiet. Um, that's going to involve turning your phone off or at least at the very least turning it to um, airplane mode nothing distracting you go to a, don't go to a coffee shop don't go to your living room with the TV on and the children playing that's, that would not be a good idea find a quiet place where you can catch your breath maybe take a couple of deep breaths you don't have to be new age uh, to, to do that and find that helpful. A couple of deep breaths. And to pray. To pray that God would speak to you now as you open his word 
and give you a sense of his presence with you. Silencio. Lectio. Well, that really is just the idea of read. Read. Read the Bible. Select a passage. But really, here the idea is not to read for just length. That's really useful, and I'll come back to that in a second, just to know what's in the Bible. This is the idea of read slowly. Select a passage, read it slowly. And when you come to something that seems to stand out to you, stop there. Read it again, slowly. Repeat it slowly to yourself. That leads then to the the third step, meditatio. Meditate, think about it deeply. Turn that idea, that word, that idea, that character, that plot line, whatever it is, just turn that over in your head, over and over. If this is true, if this is true, how should this affect how I live my life? This, this, whatever this is I'm reading, if this is true, how should it affect the way I relate to my spouse, the way I act towards my family, the way I speak towards others, how I relate in the workplace, how I use my money or my time or whatever? How should this, what should I, what should I do with this if this is true? But don't stop there. How should this make me feel? How should this make me feel? Convicted? Calmed? Energized? Joy-filled? Oratio. And that really is the idea of you turn what you've just read back into prayer to God. Engage with the author of the book. As you think about these things, now turn that back to prayer um, if you read something wonderful, if you read something wonderful, respond with rejoicing. Praise adoration. Thank you, this is true. You're wonderful. Um, if you read something that convicts you, I, there's, here is wisdom that I am not following, a command that I have disobeyed. You need to respond with repentance. I am sorry. Forgive me for how I have disregarded this part of your word. Perhaps, and God is okay with this, by the way, perhaps you need to rant. Perhaps you need to rant. You read something distressing. You read something distressing. And you need to respond. You need to respond. Express your doubt, your confusion, perhaps even your anger to God. Run back to him with your confusion rather than away from him. And then request. Request. Perhaps you read a promise or, or you read uh, something that, that God is doing, exciting, that he has planned. And you might want to request that you, you have that. I, I, rece- I want to receive that. That sounds amazing. I want that. Or I want to be part of what you're doing. Help me to play my little part in your plan. You see what you're doing? You're, you, it's not just a reading exercise. Reading the Bible is never just about reading. It's about trying to develop a conversational relationship with our God. And then uh, contemplatio, contemplating. Um, And this is the idea that you don't just then, when you're finished saying your prayer, you don't just go and frantically run off with your day. You just take a few moments just to pause. And simply, this sounds, it's difficult to explain, but in one sense it's just simply to pause and enjoy the presence of God. Enjoy the presence of God. Just for a few moments.
to settle you, to center you, and then go off with your day. Um, my practice personally is I, I read about four chapters every morning. I use that little Bible in a year app that I find really helpful that I know many of you are finding helpful at the minute. Uh, and as I read those four chapters or so every day, uh, one will stand out. One will pop in some way. I'll, I'll come back to that. And then I work through these five steps on that passage. And it's usually only a verse or two that I find helpful. Um, and again, the goal of it is not so that I know more stuff. The goal is that I would engage with the God who wants to speak to me and respond to him in prayer. One word, uh, if you'll indulge me, let's say we have five minutes. One word to parents before I finish. If you're a parent here, we are trees, okay? According to the image here, if you're trusting in Jesus, you're a tree. And for many of us, God has entrusted little saplings. He's entrusted little saplings. My question for you is, what is your ambition for your child? What, what way do you want them to flourish? Now, there's all sorts of answers to that. I want them to be academically successful and get into the best school and the best university. Um, perhaps you want them to have sporting prowess. You want them to get on the first team of whatever sport. Um, perhaps you want them to have a good career. Perhaps you want them to find love. Look, all of those are wonderful and good and right ambitions in all sorts of ways. But Psalm 1 is saying, here should be your big ambition for your children. Is that they know God. They delight in his word. That they become fruitful and that they will be able to stand safe and secure among the righteous on the final day. That should be your ultimate goal for your children. And so to, if, if that is really your goal, then you will be leading them into the Bible. You'll be reading it to them. You'll be reading it with them. And here's something I want to suggest as well. is You will want them to, to see you read it. For yourself, even while they're doing something different. To just communicate to them that you love this book. C.H. Spurgeon said this. Visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Read, 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 read. It's a wonderful gift. Uh, especially if you're an English speaker at our stage in history where there's so many wonderful things to read. Travel widely to Narnia, to Mordor, wherever. Wherever it is, there's so many options we can travel uh, as we read. But make your home, make your home in the Bible. And as you do so, you will get to know God better. Love him more. You will flourish as a person. And you will be able to face the final day with absolute confidence, without any fear, because you know that Christ died for you. Before we celebrate that, let me pray. Let me pray.